from 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 3 through 12. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into a confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Until now, the Lord has helped us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Sanctify us in your truth, because your word is eternal truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. My mother was going through some of my grandmother's things about a year ago, just before she had passed away. And she knew that my grandma didn't have much time. And as she was going through some of the things, she found an old candle that my grandmother bought from me when I was selling them in sixth grade. I was selling them in sixth grade so I could go on the big sixth grade trip from Macintosh to the big city of Minneapolis. And we were going to see Fort Snelling, which was a big deal in those days. And my mom saw this candle. She said to my grandma, what in the world? What on earth are you doing with this candle? She didn't have a whole lot of room in this apartment. And why would you hold on to this candle after a lot of years? And my grandma said, that's James. That reminds me of James. And so for my grandmother, that candle was a reminder of my presence. It was sort of a memorial stone for my grandma. You know, God does that. You, you may have memorial stones, too. Some, you know, we all have stuff. You might call it junk hanging around our house that reminds us of somebody or reminds us of a special event. There are memorial stones that we have in our own homes. God does the same thing for us. He gives us memorial stones. And He does this a lot in the Old Testament. As you look through the Old Testament, you'll see memorial stone after memorial stone. And here in 1 Samuel chapter 7, we see God giving the people of Israel another memorial stone. And it's called Ebenezer. More on that a little bit later. But let me set up the scene a little bit here. Ebenezer is first found in the Bible in 1 Samuel chapter 4. It's a different Ebenezer, but it is connected to this one in chapter 7. And so we're going to get back to that later. But just to set the scene, here's what is happening in Israel. In chapter 4... Israel is going up against the Philistines. 
And according to chapter 4, verse 2, Israel is losing badly to the Philistines. 4,000 Israeli men were killed almost immediately in battle. And you have to ask the question, why is this happening? And the Israelis were asking this question, why is this happening? We are God's people. God is with us, is He not? And if we are God's people, and if He's our God, we should be winning. But they didn't get it. See, the Israelis never asked the question, why, God, are you not with us? Why, God, have you stopped being in our presence? Why is your presence not with us? They stopped asking that question. And instead, they decided to go to the secret weapon that they knew that they had. And that was the Ark of the Covenant. And they felt that with the Ark of the Covenant, they would be unbeatable. Now, you probably know something about the Ark of the Covenant. If you've never read about it in the Bible, maybe you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't know. But you know something about this Ark, right? This Ark was a very powerful symbol of God's presence with them. This, this Ark of the Covenant, when they took it into battle, they were unbeatable, it seemed, at least. Remember, as they were coming into the promised land, as the priests were carrying the Ark of the Covenant across the Jordan, as soon as their feet hit the Jordan, it, it divided. And they were walking on dry ground. And remember the Ark of the Covenant, as they went around Jericho, the walls came tumbling down. They saw this Ark of the Covenant as a powerful thing in itself. And so they were trusting in the symbol of God's power rather than in God Himself. Now in Exodus chapter 25, we read about this Ark of the Covenant and, that, and God tells them that on the mercy seat of this Ark of the Covenant, I will meet you there. I will meet you there. My presence will be with you. And so they lost because they trusted in the symbols of God's power. And since they had the ark, they assumed that God was with them, but God was not with them. As they took the ark into battle in chapter 4, we find that they lost even more disastrously than they had before. 30,000 Israeli men were killed as they brought that ark of the covenant into battle with them. And not only did they lose the battle... They lost the symbol of God's power and God's presence with them. They actually lost the Ark of the Covenant itself. The Philistines took it with them and they were thrilled. They had the Ark of the Covenant now, but God was not with them either. And as we continue to read on in 1 Samuel, find that the Philistines began to develop tumors. We think maybe perhaps cancerous tumors. They began to develop these tumors and they wanted to get rid of that Ark too. And so they sent it back to Israel. And the very first city that it came to was a city called Bet Shemesh. And in that city, 70 men of Israel looked upon the Ark of the Covenant. And the Bible says they died for looking at the Ark of the Covenant. And so they, they sent it on to the next city, Kiriath-Jerim, where it stayed for 20 years. And that is the setting for where we are now in chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 2, we read this, And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord, 
See, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't in his tabernacle right now. It was in another city in Israel, but no one dared to move it. So for 20 years, it sat there. And the people, the Bible says, lamented after the Lord. Now, this Ark of the Covenant was simply a chest. It's about, about four and a half feet wide. Or long, rather, I should say. It's about two and a half feet wide and about the same height, two and a half feet high. It was covered with pure gold. And there were cherubim, angels on either end of the ark facing each other. And in the middle of that ark was the mercy seat. And that was essentially the ark of the covenant. Now, that ark of the covenant was not just a chest covered with gold. It was also a symbol of God's presence with the people of Israel. It was there that the Shekinah glory of God resided. It was there that God was present with His people. God's holiness was seen in that Ark of the Covenant. So why did 70 men die for simply looking at the Ark? Why, later on, we see in David's reign, a man named Uzzah later tried to steady the Ark of the Covenant and he died for touching it. Why was this Ark, which was a symbol of God's presence, seemingly so dangerous to the people who were around it? Well, have you ever considered the artifacts of other nationalities or other religions, I should say? Ever considered, for instance, take the Buddha. What does everybody do with the Buddha who worships the Buddha? They rub the Buddha's tummy, right? They, they, they reach out and they touch it and they rub his tummy. And they think that if they rub the tummy of the Buddha, that the Buddha will be able to give them all that they want and make their lives better. You find that in other religions too, in other idols and so on, that if you just throw some money at the idol, that that idol or that god, so to speak, will give you what you want. That's the way it is with other religions, essentially. You give them your religion, your devotion, your morality. You give them all of that. And if you give that idol or that God your morality, your religion, your goodwill, your good works, that in some way you will receive back from that idol even more than you gave to it. And you see, that's where the Ark of the Covenant And that's where God is different from these other religions. The ark was to be treated completely different. You were not only not to give it anything, you were not to touch it. But the only time you would have anything to do with the ark of the covenant, if you were a person of Israel, was when sacrifices were made on the altar. And... The Ark of the Covenant was way back in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. And it was there that only the high priest could go and only once a year during Yom Kippur. And as you made sacrifices on the altar, the blood of the sacrifice would be taken back into the Holy of Holies. And there it was put on the mercy seat. The blood was splattered on the mercy seat. And there God would make atonement. And so what is this telling us? In other religions, you can reach out to those religions with devotion and morality and get power from the deity. 
But God is telling us something completely different. You see, there is a chasm between humanity and God. And our religion and our devotion and our morality can never bridge that huge chasm between ourselves and God. Only the atonement could bridge that chasm. That's what we learn about this Ark of the Covenant. And it was only through Jesus Christ that sacrifice could be made, that atonement could be made for your sins and for my sins. And that is the only way that that chasm could be bridged. And there was only one who could pay that debt, Jesus Christ. God, it seemed, had turned His back on Israel. That's why in verse 2, they're sad, they're crying, they're mourning. But I'd like you to turn with me to to verse 3, chapter 7, verse 3. To get a clue as to why God had turned His back on the Israelites. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So what was, what was it that God did not like about what Israel was doing? They were worshiping other gods. See, God will not share us with anything else. He won't share us with other gods. He won't share us with other things. God is a jealous God. He wants us all to Himself. He wants us all to Himself. And so repentance and faith are what are necessary for God's presence in our lives. Now, some of you might be thinking right now that if I just muster up now enough repentance, and if I can just get enough faith, then, then God will make everything go well in my life. See, that's what, that's what the Israelites needed. They just needed to have enough faith and, and enough repentance, and then everything would go swimmingly for them, right? And we think the same for ourselves. I just need enough repentance and faith. But here's the problem. If that's the way you think about repentance and faith, that's not what they are. Oswald Chambers said this about, about faith and repentance. He said, faith for my deliverance is not faith in God. Faith means whether I'm visibly delivered or not, I will stick to my belief that God is love. There are some things only learned in a fiery furnace. Let me just say that first part again. Faith for my deliverance is not faith in God. Here's the thing. If I am trusting in God because I think He's going to deliver me out of a situation that I don't like right now, that's not really faith. That's sort of, God, I'll give you something if you give me something back, right? It's a, it's a bargain. It's a you know, bartering with God. That's not faith. He says, there are some things only learned in the fiery furnace. And, and what he's harkening back to, of course, is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. When facing the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3, here's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. They said, our God is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your, king, out of your hand, O King. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. See, true faith trusts in the one who redeemed you no matter what. Because ultimately, Ebenezer is faith, it's trust in Jesus Christ. 
You see, it's easy to say, my God is able to deliver us out of the fiery furnace. That's easy to be able to say. I can say that, God, you will deliver me. The hard part of that sentence is, but if not. That's the hardest part. But if not. How many of you have faced a but if not? You have prayed for your son, for your daughter, for your husband, for your wife, for a job situation. You have prayed and you've earnestly prayed and you think you have faith. And God's not answering the way you think. God's not answering the way that we want Him to answer. I don't understand why. I don't understand why God doesn't answer prayers the way I want Him to. And I don't understand why God answers them in a way that I would never have expected and never wanted Him to answer them in the first place. I don't understand that. But Tim Keller has kind of helped me in this particular issue. He, I'm going to paraphrase something that, that he has said about this. When asked about why God allows suffering to take place in our world, why would a loving God allow that? Tim Keller says this. He said, I don't, I don't know why. He says, but as we look at the cross of Jesus, we still do not know what the answer is. However, we do know what the answer cannot be. It cannot be that God does not love us. It cannot be that God is indifferent or detached from us. And you know why? It's because God takes misery so seriously. He takes your misery so seriously that He sent His own Son on the cross to take that misery upon Himself. God took your misery upon Himself. So I don't know the reason why some of the things happen that they do. I don't have all the reasons for that. I don't know why the but if not of all the prayers that I've offered up to God. But I do know what it cannot be. It cannot be that God doesn't love you. It cannot be that God doesn't care about you because He does. Because He died for you. He took that all upon Himself. But if not, God, I trust You. Even if I don't understand You, I trust You. Let's go on to verses 4 through 6. By the way, I'm not going to do this all the way through because we would be here all morning. So, uh, 4 through 6. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashereth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And so they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and feast or fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. 
They repented before the Lord. That, that's so key. They repented before the God we have sinned. You know, in books of First and Second Samuel, there are three occasions where that phrase is used. We have sinned before the Lord. It is here in chapter 7 where Samuel leads the people in a corporate repentance and, and they, they come to him in, in true repentance and in faith and God forgives them all of their sins and he restores them to their, their former position. We also see this same phrase used in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And there it's used by Saul. Saul had sinned, and he used the same phrase that the people of Israel did, except he used the personal pronoun. He said, I, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, I want you to turn, if you have your Bibles, to where Saul does the same thing. In chapter 15, verse 24. And there Saul says, I have sinned, well, I'll wait till you get there. First Samuel fifteen twenty four. Saul says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. And wouldn't it be wonderful if Saul ended right there? If Saul had ended right there, and if in his heart he believed the words that he was saying, that's a true repentance, and God, I believe, would have restored him. But he doesn't stop right there. He continues on. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. When you repent, stop before you get to the excuses. And if you're repentant and you stop before you get to the excuses, but in your mind, all those excuses are coming up, all the reasons for what you did come up, then repent of your repentance. Because here's what's happening. When you make excuses in your repentance, basically what you are doing is lessening Christ's sacrifice for your sin. You are in effect saying, here's my excuse. I had a really good reason for my sinning. And so while I need to repent of the sin, not so much. I, mean, I kind of need to repent of it, but, but not all the way, because after all, man, I had a really good reason for it. That person really instigated the whole thing in the first place, and if they hadn't done what they had done, I wouldn't have done what I had done. And so I really don't need complete forgiveness, but you know, God, I know I'm supposed to do this, so I, I ask you for And you know what? My, my repentance is not nearly as necessary as that person over there, because they have really sinned. Okay? That's what we do when we make excuses. We are lessening the need... For Christ's justification, God's justification of our sin. Because we're making justification for ourselves. We're saying, Jesus, I don't need your complete forgiveness. I don't need your justifying work on the cross. I can justify myself because there's a really good reason for doing what I did. When you repent, say simply, I have sinned. Because the third time we see this, and I, I, I use that for our confession of sin this morning, Psalm 51, when David sinned with Bathsheba, he made that wonderful confession in Psalm 51. And also in 2 Samuel 12:13, When confronted with his sin against Bathsheba, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And he left it at that. God wants to forgive you. Jesus has redeemed you. Simply repent and receive His forgiveness. 
The people of Israel simply repented and God forgave their sins, which brings us back to Ebenezer. Two Ebenezers, chapter 4, verse 1, and chapter 7, verse 12. Two Ebenezers, but they are connected. And I want you to see how they are connected. Ebenezer is only used, as far as I know, three times in all of Scripture. Chapter 4, chapter 7, I think it's chapter 5 also. There's only three times that word Ebenezer is used. Thus far, God has helped me. And it really means stone of help is what the, what the word actually means. But the first Ebenezer was a devastating loss of life because the symbol of God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, was taken. And what had happened in that first Ebenezer is that they simply trusted in the wrong thing. They trusted in the external symbols of God's power. But here in chapter 7, the Israelites won a great victory because in repentance and faith, they trusted in God himself. Thus far, God has been faithful. And I want to leave you with this then. Has God been faithful? You know, there's a couple of different levels you can ask that question. You can ask that about Grace Free Lutheran Church. Has God been faithful to you? Now, I haven't been here enough to know. I've been here like three different times in your history. In Bible school with Jay Erickson as the pastor. In seminary with Laurel Udden as the pastor. And now with Peter Franz as your pastor. But just here and there, some of you have been here the entire time. Has God been faithful? Then on another level, the question that you can ask is, has God been faithful in your life? And can I answer that for you? Yes, He has. God has been faithful. He redeemed you with the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. He has been faithful. To God alone be the glory. Amen. Heavenly Father, we praise You and thank You for Your faithfulness. God, You are faithful. And we thank you that we can say, as with the people of Israel, thus far God has been faithful. And we know that in the future you will be faithful too. And so I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would live in that faithfulness, reside in that kind of repentance. The repentance that doesn't make excuses, but just simply says, I have sinned. And then trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.